Hey, what's up everybody? Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. I hope your Saturday is going well. It is cold here, I think like 32 degrees. Again, the cold here is not the cold uh, back home. It's uh, bites. It bites. It's just not fun. And if you wear too much on the run, then you start sweating and you get colder. And if you don't wear enough, you just get cold. So you're kind of screwed either way. But anyways, I don't usually put out podcasts on the weekend. But I wanted to do an updated episode on some of the World Cup controversies that are happening and kind of a shitstorm in in all seriousness because the FIFA World Cup is starting in a little bit, starting in November, which is a weird time to have it. Kind of sucks. I like FIFA in the summer when there's not any other sports to watch. I did an episode on the dark side of FIFA back in April, and now I just want to kind of do some updates on that story about the kind of chaos and controversies because it's happening in Qatar in, what, about eight days now, I want to say. And as we're getting closer and closer to the games, there's more controversy, more chaos, more outrage, talks of people boycotting. I'm curious what the actual viewing numbers are going to be because you have people in Western countries, more rich countries saying they're not going to watch it. But you have to wonder if the majority of the world still will. So, The way this episode is going to go is that the first half, I'm going to go over some new news reports and stories and give my thoughts about Qatar, FIFA, and if people should watch it, basically. Then the second half, I'm actually going to play the episode from April, to because I I think it kind of transitions well from these updates into that, so it'll be kind of a repost after that. Uh, So if you haven't heard it, the second half will have that. If you have, then just listen to the first half. So in a perfect world, right, the game should be in June. I think it's, yeah, June. They should be exciting. My two favorite teams slash countries are both in it this year. The United States is back in it and Spain is in it. I'll probably end up cheering on Spain just because the team's better and I actually follow them more. But anyways, no, the games are happening in November. We have lots of other sports happening, NBA, football. I I just almost feel like we don't need this right now, but it is happening. So... It starts in about eight days, like I said, and there's a lot of just troubling stories. I'm, well, before we get into that, I should also just add that I'm looking at the schedule, (laughs) and the time change is going to suck for some of these games as well, which which is going to be fun. I guess it is going to be light out for some of these, at least, because of the time change we had here, but yeah, I'm looking at the schedule, and there are some games that we'll be lucky enough here on Central Time to watch at 1 p.m., So if you're in the West Coast, no, you don't get to watch any afternoon games. But there's also games that are going to be happening at 4 a.m. here, 7 a.m. here, or 10 a.m. here. So if you're in the West Coast, 2 a.m., 5 a.m., or 8 a.m., and then 11 a.m. will be the latest for you. So lucky, lucky, lucky. I don't know about you guys, but I don't really like to get up early to watch a game. That's just not how it works for me. You know, games are supposed to be in the midday, afternoon, or evening. I don't know. It's a nice way to kind of enjoy the day. You don't want to, like, lose sleep to get up and watch a 4 a.m. game if your team's playing, right? Not exactly fun. Like, I didn't even watch the Packers when they played in London because the game was at 6 and it was a Sunday morning and I'd had a late night with some friends and, yeah, just not worth it. So, in this case, I don't know, for example, I'm looking at the schedule again and I don't know if it'd be worth it to get up at 4 a.m. to watch Argentina play Saudi Arabia in the first round. Anyways, I'm not doing an episode on these uh, logistics, but it's, it's kind of just icing on the cake for me. But anyways, I wanted to start with a report from yesterday out of Denmark that I think is a perfect summarization of everything wrong with FIFA and the World Cup being in Qatar. 
So according to CNN here in quotes, and this was also reported by ESPN and like numerous other sources, it's kind of all over the internet if you type in FIFA Qatar. <laughs> um, it says in quotes here, the men's Danish soccer team has been forbidden from wearing training shirts showing human rights messaging at this month's World Cup in Qatar. Apparently, from what I've gathered here, the Danish Football Federation CEO, this guy Jacob, Jacob sorry, Jensen, he revealed the ban in, in an interview. Uh, the article continues saying, the Danish Football Federation planned for the jerseys to read human rights for all. How controversial. It continues, but Jensen told a sports outlet that we received a message from FIFA that the training shirt we had thought the players should train in had been rejected for technical reasons, and we are sorry about that. Fun stuff. And now I did some digging around the great interwebs to see why this may have been, and apparently FIFA has justified this decision by basically saying that it abides by the International Football Association Board's laws of the game. <laughs> Always fun. And... They declined to really comment on it, but then if you look into the International Football Association's laws of the game, there is law 4.4, and it stipulates in quotes, equipment must not have any political, religious, or personal slogans, statements, or images. Now, the interesting part about that rationale is that I don't really know that saying human rights for all is much of a political or religious statement. The only way it could be seen as that is if the host country does not see human rights as the same way as others are and they feel like they're being called out because they're guilty of something. Maybe they don't agree on what these human rights mean, so they feel challenged by that statement. That's the only way that I could see that even somewhat reflecting political statements. Now, it's definitely a personal slogan, right? But I just think there's so many issues in the world and so many problems out there and to like not let the players do this is kind of insane to me. And, you know, I, I think it's the right shirt to wear. And if, if, I, if I was in FIFA, I'd be like, come on. I mean, this is already controversial. Let's just let them do this. Because based on what we've learned, I mean, I read an article yesterday that, you know, and I would say a conservative estimate is about 3,000 workers have died building these stadiums. I'm sure it's much higher. Again, remember, it's hot as hell, even in the winter. Working conditions are awful. Of course, like I talk about later in the episode, um, FIFA usually builds new stadiums using state funds, and it's wasteful. And so, yeah, people have died. The, the migrant labor they use in Qatar is awful. We'll get into that later as well. But, but yeah, we just keep learning about workers dying in awful conditions to build these stadiums. Gay activity is illegal in the country. Alcohol is not allowed, but they're going to, I guess, have an exception for the games. And there was, a, there was a German official who, I guess, visited Qatar and they're part of the LGBTQ plus community. And I guess the, the Qatari government had to guarantee this individual that they would not be threatened there and there'd be special immunity for them, which is just not, not a good look either. And so for me, it's safe to say that Qatar is not a huge fan of human rights, at least in the sense of what you know this Danish team wants to say. Now, the next thing that makes this World Cup even more problematic, we're kind of going on a little adventure across all the problems, is... The Economist has a small piece on how an ambassador for, for Qatar's Football World Cup said here in quotes, homosexuality, sorry, Saturday, I can't speak, homosexuality was damage in the mind. Always nice when you start with that. He also noted here in quotes that visiting fans must remember that gay sex is illegal in the tiny Gulf state. Now, who knows how many people are going to be doing that just because they know the risk, but I guess it's kind of crazy when you have a World Cup with people from all over the world, 
And things that are maybe legal in some of the countries that are going there are all of a sudden like a death penalty in some of these countries. So it just seems, again, kind of insane. It's sending the wrong message in so many ways. Also, if it doesn't, it doesn't help even more, if there's anything else that could be worse, is that the former FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, who's a character, he basically was the one who led the organization when Qatar was awarded the hosting rights. He told a Swiss newspaper, Tages Anziger, he said here in quotes, Qatar is a mistake, adding that the choice was bad. <laughs> That's always good, right? After you invest in this, there's some kind of shady deals that they made to do this. And then you finally admit, okay, I'm no longer the head of FIFA, and I guess this wasn't a great idea. It's just, it just is very, very telling. Now, I should also add, it's fun. The U.S. Uh, Justice Department has alleged, and again, alleged, I should make that clear, that Qatar was involved in bribing FIFA delegates for the vote. Of course, FIFA officials have denied this, but if you guys follow any of these other stories, I remember there was links with Nigerian officials doing this too with FIFA. It's pretty common for this to happen, and it kind of makes sense. Look, oil-rich country really doesn't have a lot of the values that FIFA stands for, all of a sudden allowed to host yeah, there's probably some nefarious, shady activity there. Again, I'm not a FIFA expert, but it it doesn't take much of a stretch to say that's the case, right? And Euronews also, <laughs> continuing on this fun little tour, Euronews Euro also has an article from two days ago called FIFA and Qatar Rattled as European World Cup Gathers Pace. Sorry, as European Boycott Gathers Pace. And basically there's these banners that have been getting more and more popular that have been going around. And they're just basically saying boycott Qatar 2020, too. And the article discusses how boycott Qatar 2022 has become a rallying cry for clubs, supporters, and players alike who oppose this month's World Cup and want to highlight human rights and environmental concerns in the host nation. And the banner with this message has been seen in pretty big venues, such as Bundesliga games. That's the German, like, primary league, right? Um, you've seen it in La Liga in Spain. That's their number one league. The Premier League. I saw an interview yesterday. It was on ESPN's website where they were talking with British fans who were just discussing how they're just completely torn on whether whether they should watch this or not. And, you know, of course, there's going to be no way to actually stop the games from happening. It would be wishful thinking and wish casting to even think that's possible. But it looks like there is a growing opposition to the games. And so you have to wonder, are people going to watch them? It, you know, if, and in similar numbers as the previous ones. It does bring up questions about that, even if they're big soccer fans. And this is tough for me as well. Like, I enjoy watching the sport. I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy the whole thing. It kind of brings people together. And, but, but the fact that it's in a country who's even stipulating to people who are coming that they can't live their daily lives, it just feels like there's a lot of rules, and the whole world is basically kowtowing to a regime that doesn't value other people's values, basically. And that's not everyone in Qatar. Don't get me wrong. I've heard Dubai's a beautiful city. But I just, I just think it's kind of BS. You know, the fact we had to have these games in November because it's too hot there in the summer, maybe that's a problem. Maybe that was a red flag. You know, so it's tough. Will I watch the games? Maybe I'll watch Spain play, but I'm not going to, like, adjust my schedule to get up early to do this because it just feels wrong. There's something that just feels wrong about it. So, yeah, you know, uh, eight days away, I'm sure more stuff's going to be coming out. But anyways, I'm going to transition to the episode I put out back in March. Nothing is really outdated in that just because nothing has really changed. But yeah, give it a listen. 
If not, uh, if you've listened to it before, have a good one. And uh, here we go. Um, I'm actually not going to be talking much about Ukraine or American politics today. This is going to be kind of a special deep dive into FIFA, actually, and kind of the rotten politics and rotten corruption of FIFA and just why I think it's an organization that needs to be reformed, mainly because it is kind of the symbol of an international organization that is flawed, and it kind of reflects other ones as well. So we're going to talk about that in a few. I did want to just start off by saying I've been watching the Supreme Court hearing, or not the, you know, the hearings for the Supreme Court nomination for Kentanji Brown-Jackson. I really like her, you know, for weeks. I've been talking about her on the podcast and you know, I'll just reiterate that I like the idea of having a public defender in in uh, the Supreme Court instead of typical prosecutors. I think it just changes the perspective a lot. But God, I've, I haven't really watched a lot of these hearings, but I've seen the highlights. And, you know, it just reminds me how stupid some of our elected officials are. I mean, Lindsey Graham, like he was he voted actually to confirm her last year to the D.C. Circuit Court, I believe. And now he's asking her on a scale of 1 to 10, how religious are you? What religion are you? Me being fairly libertarian in a lot of things, I'm like, who cares? Like, who who cares what religion you are? Also, we're rating it. Like, does it matter? Like, you almost want someone who whose religion doesn't reflect their views. Then you have uh, Marsha Blackburn, another unique one. Um, she, she tweeted that um, the Constitution protects uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but not abortion talking about, you know, she's very anti-abortion, and uh, Justin Amash, a great libertarian, um, he he tweeted back, he's like, you should at least know that that's uh, actually the Declaration of Independence, not the Constitution, and uh, the, why are all of a sudden Republicans being so focused on, on government being involved in these things? And it's a good question. It seems like the Republican Party is becoming more authoritarian or at least believing in big government when it comes to issues like gender, abortion, gay rights, etc., um, and a true libertarian or a true party that's not for government intervention should not be for those. But, you know, the contradictions are all out there. And, you know, you had Ted Cruz asking her um, if she believes in critical race theory, if babies are racist. I'm just like, good God, like, give me a break with some of this stuff. It's just exhausting. And, you know, you have Josh Hawley, who's criticizing a uh, Justice or potential Justice Jackson for not prosecuting child pornography well enough. Um, from what I've gathered, it's actually quite common for the sentences to be more lenient than some would expect. She's not different in that. Um, you know, you had Lindsey Graham also criticizing her for defending Gitmo or Guantanamo Bay people. She has a defense attorney, right? Like her job is to give people defense. And also we have to remember that people in our constitution and in our legal system are always granted defense. And she does that. She's a defense attorney. And they seem to have issues with that. And yeah, my, my, my takeaway from this was I learned nothing from these hearings. Like the left was all excited about her being the first black woman, which is great. Like I'm fine with that. But I didn't learn anything about her philosophy really or how she would work in the Supreme Court or her judicial views. All I learned was that, you know, one side is happy that she's a woman, so basing, you know, the identity politics side of it, and the other side was just focused on smearing her. And <laughs> it just shows me how, like, inept our politicians are, but I guess when our society is pretty inept in a lot of ways, I guess it doesn't really surprise me. But uh, 
she she will get nominated unless just some crazy snafu happens. I'm just I'm just curious how this is going to look if all the Republicans vote against the first black woman. And I'm not trying to go down the identity politics thing here, but I do wonder what impact that's actually going to have when she is the first black justice and if all the Republicans vote against her, is that politically good? You know, there was a time when people would just like like both parties voted to confirm a nominee as long as they weren't super flawed. I know Justice Clarence Thomas was quite controversial after the sexual assault allegations um, with Anita Hill, I believe it was. But usually they get passed almost unanimously. But over the last few years, both sides have just really put their heels, just, just dug down with this stuff. And yeah, uh, we shall see. But, you know, I, I've also seen over the last couple of days, Clarence Thomas was in the hospital. I think that would be uh, I think that would be pretty fascinating if something did happen to him. You know, that's a conversation that does need to be had as a lot of these guys and, and ladies are older. And I think we could see a much more contested hearing if someone else was to be either either to retire or to pass away, because we have to remember that really Justice Jackson doesn't really change anything here except Biden gets a new young pick, which is good. But if we saw someone like Clarence Thomas or something have issues down the road, I think we could see a pretty heated Supreme Court battle. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting times. I also would just add, before we get into the meat of this, that I, uh, I started watching Servant of the People. That's that show with Vladimir Zelensky, where he plays a history teacher. He's recorded ranting about politics and how they're broken in Ukraine. And the rant goes viral. He becomes the surprise president to his dismay and the dismay of the elites in Ukraine. And the rest is kind of basically just a pretty funny sitcom. I actually really liked it. Um, it's it's funny, and it does give an interesting look or perspective into what life is like in Kiev. Now, <laughs> I, I found it useful just to really get a perspective of what life is like on the ground, though it's a TV show, obviously. But I do think it's kind of strange that Netflix put it out now. Um, you know, this is not um, time for profits. It's not time for games. So the timing is a little strange, and I've, I've seen a lot of people have said it's not the most opportune time for that. So, But, you know, if you do want to see what Ukraine is like, what Zelensky is like as a comedian, uh, yeah, maybe give it a watch. Anyways, uh, yeah, those are just kind of my opening uh, opening little thoughts here to get us going. Today, i just like to do a kind of special deep dive into FIFA. You know, there's so much coverage about all the other topics that... I figured let's talk about something different today. Not saying, obviously, the other issues in the world right now are not important, but yeah, just wanted to switch it up. So um, FIFA is the Federal International Football Association. It's actually the French word of that, but for the sake of me not butchering it, we're just going to call it that. Um, The relevance of this is that the World Cup will be taking place in November of 2020 in Qatar, People might be going, wait, November 2022? What? Isn't it usually in the summer? You would be correct. It's usually in the summer. But it's happening then because, well, if you look at where Qatar is, summers are brutal. Um, As far as I've understood, it can get as hot as like 120, 130 degrees there. And uh, yeah, it's not ideal for for playing football or slash soccer. And um, so yeah, they've moved it to November. And we're going to get into that later because basically the whole uh, international communities had to basically be flexible just for Qatar to make money, basically, but I'll, I'll stop the rant for now. But the reason I want to talk about FIFA is because since the invasion of Ukraine, there have been talks of banning Russia, 
But then also there's been worries that people are going to let the team, the Russian team, play under a different name, much like what happened in the Winter Olympics. Russia, you know, the doping scandal, so the Russian team wasn't allowed. But then you also had the Russian Olympic Committee, which in my opinion was bullshit. That that, I mean, it's like, okay, we see what you're doing. You can cheat and we'll still let you play because of money, basically. But I luckily saw that um, in February, FIFA did suspend Russia from the World Cup. And that's promising. You know, it shouldn't even be a debate considering just how atrocious the Putin regime is behaving. But as I was thinking about this, and it's the reason I want to talk about this today, is that I've kind of looked back through my mind and remember just the stories I've seen over the years about how corrupt FIFA is, how the Qatar games will be controversial at best, how close to a million people could potentially die building these stadiums for the 2022 games, and how these stadiums are built, wasteful, and never used again. So I think it's just a good time to dive into this, you know. And I, uh, while I've been back in uh, Tahoe, I, uh, I was I was with my dad at a re- at a restaurant one night, and we met a met a guy who's a soccer fan, and he was like, "You should do a deep dive into FIFA." Um, and yeah, I think it's a good idea. So just for a quick background for those who do not watch soccer, football, um, FIFA is a nonprofit organization that describes itself as basically an international governing body of association football futsal and beach soccer and it's the highest governing body um, of association football it was founded in france in 1904 and its headquarters is in geneva switzerland of course (laughs) that just seems really fitting to me for some reason uh not sure why maybe the neutrality thing anyways also something interesting that i just learned today is that there is a strategic alliance between fifa and the united nations which was signed in 1999 and if you think about it fifa is almost kind of a united nations in some ways Except, you know, it also does allow in despots and murderous regimes and nations that would never be admitted to the United Nations, right? But it is a it is an organization that could be seen as providing importance for many causes, right, and UN values. So it makes sense. But as we discuss, <laughs> it's not always so so sunny. So starting with this article from Duke University, it's called The Dark Side of FIFA, Selected Controversies and the Future of Accountability in the Organization. And the article basically just gives us some examples of how much clout FIFA has in the world and how this organization has been involved in good and a lot of bad. So the author is Christina Maliris, and she writes here in quotes that FIFA exerts quite an important influence over the rest of the world. And she gives a few examples of the positives, which include the organization's acts in South Africa, which was near the end of apartheid, and actually South Africa... During that time, FIFA's involvement in the country actually helped contribute to the end of the system because the terms they put on South Africa put a lot of pressure on the apartheid regime. So that's a positive for sure. And you can see that, you know, soccer does bring people and cultures together. And I think that's a big thing we do need to remember is that, you know, sports are good in some ways. Also, the article mentions that when Nigeria was finally allowed into the league, it was a major breakthrough for national unity of the country. And there was a, for a little bit, there was actually a semblance of unity and a shared purpose, right? And I think that is one of the biggest positives of FIFA. You know, um, I lived in Spain for about four years, and I just remember thinking, like, Spain has a lot of cultural division. The autonomous regions have a lot of differences. And watching them all wave the Spanish flag and wear their red and yellow and cheer on the team, you know, people seem to forget about their differences. So I think that's something really important. Now, before we get into more specific issues with FIFA, because there's definitely a lot of them. 
I think it's just important to note that FIFA is a, a you know, it's a non-governmental organization. So obviously it has to adhere to international law, but there's times where the regulatory body is just not there. And so there's a lot of inside internal issues that maybe international government organizations or NGOs or nonprofits sometimes don't have the same issues with. And so I first want to go into probably, to me, the most troubling one, which I don't think gets as, gets enough coverage. Obviously, people talk about the corruption and bribery, which we'll get to later. But to me, it's labor practices and potential human rights violations, which are probably the biggest issues. Um, the first controversy is kind of how the host countries in general are not always places that have the best uh, labor practices or human rights laws or protections. And this comes up a lot with Qatar for the 2022 games because I think it's the most glaring example. Um, the games that are occurring there um, in the winter, as I said, there's a lot of shady labor practices in, in the World Cup building efforts, um, you know, putting up the stadiums, installing infrastructure, etc. However, um, there have been troubling reports on the deaths of Nepalese uh, people who are working on these sites. Also, back during the games in South Africa, I think, what, a, over a decade ago now, there were workers' strikes over allegations that the workers were working more than 18 hours a day. And it was for like 190 rand, which I saw as close to 20 euros. So you're working 18 hours a day for 20 bucks, basically. 22 bucks, I guess, if we're doing dollars. So also another recent example is the overscheduled expansion processes, which happened at the Sao Paulo airport in Brazil to anticipate increased traffic during the World Cup, which happened again probably seven, eight years ago. And this actually led to an investigation by the BBC, which found migrant workers living in just atrocious conditions and being paid barely anything and that seems to be a trend throughout the olympics as well this is like just just to step back for a second a lot of these issues that we're seeing with fifa you could probably say a lot of them are similar with the olympics so just keep that in mind is that a lot of these international like the ioc the international olympic committee is just as flawed but for the sake of today i didn't want to talk about that so to go into the qatar example it's the most recent, so I think it's the one we'll really focus on. Basically, Amnesty International has an article that discusses how, in quotes here, without the 2 million migrant workers, the 2022 World Cup simply would not be possible in Qatar. Men and women, mostly from Africa and Asia, are building the stadiums, the roads, the metro, etc. The article also mentions that in 2017, the Qatari government signed an agreement with the International Labor Organization promising to tackle widespread labor exploitation. However, this does not seem to have occurred, and it's, it's probably because, I don't know how much you guys know about Qatar's system, but they have a pretty corrupt and exploitative uh, labor system that really relies on something that is not technically slave labor, but it's getting borderline there. And the system is called the Kafala system, and it's basically sponsorship-based employment, which legally binds foreign employees to their employers or foreign refugees, foreign migrants, etc., to their employers. Now, in theory, that sounds good. Like bring over immigrants from a poor country and give them a better situation, right? But the reports I've seen over the years, and this Amnesty International article also brings this up, is that many companies will destroy these workers' passports and then ban them from leaving the country entirely. So this kind of traps these workers in these workers, sorry, in cycles of abuse and something close to slavery. So they basically destroy their documents and then force them to work. And then because of this system, they are obligated legally 
to work for their employer unless their employer lets them leave. And so it's just a very depressing cycle. And, you know, I mean, if you guys just, just type in on Google some of the cities in Qatar and see what they looked like 30 years ago compared to now, they've sprung up almost overnight. And a lot of that has been done through exploitative labor like this. And now in for this 2022 games, a lot of these stadiums are going to be built by these exact people who are trapped, basically. Now, to be fair, just because I, I want to give you the full picture, is that Qatar did make important progress, which included ending something called the no objection certificate requirement, which allows employees to change jobs without the permission of their employer. I know, 20, 21st century, and we're talking about this still. but So they are allowed to apparently leave their jobs without the permission of their employer, but I don't, I don't know if that's really going to solve anything, because if you're still considered kind of a second-class citizen and all these companies are exploitative, where are you going to go? Like, you know, what are you going to go back to your country? If they've taken your documents, you're going to go to another organization or employer that might just be as bad. Like, I don't know if it's really solving anything, but it does look good rhetorically on paper. And also FIFA has pushed back on this, but it looks like it's more just in rhetoric and media. I'm hesitant to honestly, I'm just hesitant to believe that change is coming because they've been building this infrastructure and these stadiums for, half a decade now. So I don't think, as I've mentioned, because we'll get into Brazil and South Africa as well. I don't think building this infrastructure in these stadiums so quickly is really possible without exploitative practices, basically. You know, if the system is built around a quick and expensive infrastructure project, it cannot be accomplished without these, you know, just atrocious living conditions and means, honestly. thing I also didn't really know about much until today is that the exploitation doesn't just stop at the workers and the builders. There's also a documentary called Soccer's Lost Boys that I believe came out in 2010. And it looks at how the exploitation um, goes towards the players themselves. Because, you know, if you become Cristiano Ronaldo or, or Messi or whatever, you know, there's a lot of fame and wealth and just power in your future. And this organization really does use this to exploit players and there's just reports of a lot of young Africans who were kind of promised fame and wealth and got used abused and just taken advantage of by agents and the company and really found no outcome and just ended up back where they started and so you know it's just greed at its best I think you could say and you know staying on on this actual just kind of wasteful and exploitative labor practice the second big issue I have with FIFA is just the wasteful infrastructure. Um, many of the countries that have hosted FIFA, and this is a big thing that I don't think people talk about enough, don't, like all, all of these countries don't have the stadiums or infrastructure in place, and they had to build all of them from scratch. And this is problematic when you think about how many stadiums a lot of Europe, Asia, and the U.S. actually has, right? So I, I just wonder, like... Why build stadiums in the Amazon, for example, in, for when the Brazilian World Cup happened, when the UK has way, way than enough stadiums to do this, or the United States, Mexico? Like, you know, it just kind of blows my mind when you think about it. So basically, that Duke article, Duke University article from earlier, mentions that, in quotes here, um, talking about Qatar, that is, in quotes, the tiny country did not have the infrastructure to support this endeavor meaning they had to build everything from scratch, a strange place for a World Cup, when there are many other countries who have plenty of infrastructure to, to accommodate the event, end quotes. 
and a 2014 article from the UC Berkeley Political Review discusses how wasteful the Brazilian World Cup also was. It talks about how, Bra how the Brazilian World Cup was one of the most popular based on ratings, but now the majority of the stadiums that were built sit empty. And the article mentions one stadium that is important to look at. It, it reads here in quotes, In the heart of the Amazon, the World Cup stadium built in Manaus took $300 million to build and has failed to find a permanent use. Manaus doesn't house a single top division team, and its most popular club, Nacional, plays in the fourth division and draws just a couple thousand fans a game. Given the stadium's 44,500-seat capacity, such numbers are alarming. Stadiums like the one in Manaus cannot find a permanent use because they are too expensive for small local teams to use, end quotes. And honestly, as I'm recording this, I'm looking at a picture of this stadium, and you just see, like, I, I, I tell you to look it up. I mean, there's just green plants and overgrowth just taking it over, and you're like, God, $300 million. It's just problematic when you think about the extreme poverty and the extreme poverty being a crucial issue in Brazil and all this money that was wasted on a stadium. And it boosted tourism, and it boosted TV ratings for a couple weeks, but it mainly helped FIFA. It looks like it didn't really help Brazil very much. And the, the, the UC Berkeley article also continues that this issue is not just in Brazil. The article mentions that in 2010, the, uh, South Africa spent nearly $2 billion on six stadiums, which were built to host its World Cup matches. And apparently, they had... <laughs> this, is, this is fun. They had stadiums that could have been used, and all they needed to do was renovate them but they were in impoverished districts and FIFA refused to allow, to allow them to do this. So instead they built these just new six stadiums for $2 billion. And the sad thing is, is that if they had have renovated these stadiums in the more impoverished districts, it would have benefited the local communities from economic stimulus, jobs, stability. Now, you know, it's just, then you have to talk about the cost of maintaining the, the stadiums, which some of these countries just can't afford. And these stadiums in South Africa, much like in Brazil, are barely being used now, and they're just sitting there. And there's just so many issues I have with that. And, you know, like I said earlier, this, there's a lot of mirrors of this in the Olympics as well. Chinese stadiums have had these same problems. The Olympics in Brazil had these same problems. But, you know, it's just when there's so much inequality and destruction in the world, uh, to spend this type of money for basically two weeks just so FIFA can get good ratings, basically. It's not stimulating the economy long-term, and it's just uh, exploiting people and taking up wasteful space, in my opinion. Tell me if I'm wrong, but that's that's just how I feel on that. On because, I believe me, I could rant to you guys for <laughs> probably hours about that, but moving on, there's also just the, and this is probably the main issue that gets covered, is the issue of corruption, financial mismanagement, and bribery, and just clear felony activity. And this also leads to a worrying trend of the organization just buddying up with despots, tyrants, and illiberal regimes. And obviously this is relevant with Russia right now as well. And so there's a New York Times article called The U.S. Says FIFA Officials Were Bribed to Award World Cups to Russia and Qatar. And it was published in 2020, updated in 2021. And it goes into detail on this issue because we have to remember that uh, some of the previous World Cups, Qatar, well, not previous for Qatar, but the previous one was in Russia. <laughs> I, I just love how both the Olympics and FIFA have been in Russia as, you know, Putin's been kind of doing some quite shitty things for a long time. And 
it's about money um, because this New York Times article talks about after years of investigations, officials found that representatives from Russia and Qatar had just, you know, outright bribed FIFA officials in order to make sure that they would get hosting rights for the World Cup. The indictment, which was handed out back in 2020, also involved media officials and a sports marketing company in which it was found that they were involved in wire, flo- wire fraud, sorry, money laundering, and connection with bribes to secure television and marketing rights for international soccer tournaments. So, like, again, you know, it's I don't have to reiterate it, but I will. It's clear that, like, FIFA doesn't care about, like, the love of the game. <laughs> it's, it's, it's money and television rights. Um, one part of this article talks, talks about how three South, South American uh, officials received payments to vote for Qatar. Others received payments back in 2010 before the Russian World Cup. <laughs> and ironically, not, not ironically, just uniquely, I guess you could say, two of these officials I mentioned have died. And one is still in Brazil, but I guess the United States doesn't have an extradition treaty, so they can't bring this guy over to talk. So two out of the three have been disposed, and one is not talking. Uh, fun stuff. Something else also of note in this article is that it says, in quotes, more than half the people involved in the votes for the 2018 and 2022 World Cups, including the former FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, who is a piece of unique waste, in my opinion, have been accused of wrongdoing, though not necessarily criminally charged. So, yeah, I mean, Sepp Blatter, you guys should look up him, too. He's, uh, he's a piece. He's a piece of work. Uh, but it's just worrying that more than half the people that were involved in the votes for the 2018 and 2022 World Cups were somehow accused of wrongdoing and bribery. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to start really looking into where all these World Cups are happening. Now, I, I'm hoping down the road, maybe after these games, uh, maybe they'll start think, reconsidering where they, where they do these when the numbers go down. But anyways, all of this is linked to something called the FIFA corruption scandal that really rocked the organization in 2015. And it led to several nations opening up investigations into many, many top officials. And according to a BBC report at the time, the scandal erupted in May, where there was a raid on a luxury hotel in Zurich. And just this one raid led to the arrest of seven FIFA executives. Then if that wasn't scandalous enough, in the the same month, but just later, the U.S. indicted 14 current and former FIFA officials and their associates. And the charges were mainly focused on rampant, systematic, and deep-rooted corruption following an investigation and inquiry by the FBI. And this is all linked with, I think, the internal dynamics, bribery, uh, how they choose their venues, etc., etc. And the scandal was not over after this because then in December, uh, December, sorry, 16 more officials were actually charged following the arrest of two FIFA vice presidents as well. So, yeah, not, not great when the higher-ups are involved in this as well. And then there's the former Brazil Football Federation chief, Ricardo Tejera, and he was among those accused of, in quotes, being involved in criminal schemes involving well over $200 million in bribes and kickbacks, end quotes. So, call me crazy, but it seems like this was not just a one-time mistake, right? All these people are getting caught. And from what I gather, this is actually mainly due to whistleblowers. That was how a lot of this information was gathered, and uh, I've always, you know, been a hesitant supporter of whistleblowing. Now, you know, there's also been, I think just the, I, I mentioned at the top of the show, I, I think there's a lot of problems with these types of organizations, and even the UN could fall into this in some ways as well. The IOC, International Olympic Committee as well, 
where there seems to be a disregard for actually working only with countries with high values and belief in human rights. Um, I would not be surprised if China's going to have a World Cup in five or ten years. Uh, and, and that's my thing is that the rhetoric is all about unity and human rights and democracy and values. But when you really dig deep, it's like these organizations are just about the money and they'll they'll pretty much let you do a World Cup anywhere. Now, all the gloomy aside, I'm, one, I'm sure, I mean, I was wondering this, I'm sure you might be as well. How can something like this be reformed, right? And obviously, I love football, soccer, whatever you want to call it. A lot of people do as well. So we're not going to get rid of the World Cup. Though I'm actually more into La Liga, the Premier League, Bundesliga, stuff like that. Like, I actually prefer the more club games. But FIFA's always fun. It's fun to have people over, watch the games, cheer on your countries, have some beers. You know what I mean. But I found a really good good piece by Stephen Bank. And it was published in for, published first in the Vanderbilt Journal of Transactional, sorry, Transnational Law. And it was written in 2019. So post all these scandals and post the spotlight being on the corruption and just human rights abuses um, in some of these countries. And it focuses on reform. It's, it's called Reform from the Inside. And it probably doesn't come as a shock to any of you that FIFA has been focusing on reform since the scandal broke in 2015. And in this law journal, Banks basically discusses how attempts at reform have taken many pages from the U.S. corporate governance playbook, in which independent actors are brought in to keep a balance, right, between management and the shareholders, basically bringing in outsiders to fix the problem and add more oversight. And Banks writes that most of these reforms have focused on attempting to break the cycle, in quotes here, of corruption among football insiders by bringing in more outsiders including independent chairs of both the Ethics Committee and Audit and Compliance Committee, as well as individuals to serve in executive positions who have not been previously involved in the sport at any level. End quotes. And like I would just add right there is that I don't know if you want to bring in people who are not involved in the sport at any level. I don't know if that's particularly going to be an effective reform strategy. And Banks seems to agree. And uh, he doesn't think that bringing in outsiders and compliance committees and audits and evaluations is really going to be the solution. He brings up really an astute point about how FIFA does not have the same government oversight or pressure from donors that even nonprofits have in the United States and other countries. And this means that outsiders are really not the problem, which is probably not a surprise after what we've talked about. But it's really the insiders, and this must be reformed. He cites examples of how it was the insiders prior to 2014, who blew the whistle, right, on the illegal activities happening in the organization. He writes here in quotes that these so-called whistleblowers had better access to information and were more dedicated to FIFA's mission to foster the development of and growth of the sport than any outsider would be, end quotes. And I think that's a good point because you want the people who actually are passionate and involved in the organization to speak out when they need to, not some outsider who maybe doesn't understand the organization's culture to come in and try to change it. And I, I honestly think creating safety nets for whistleblowers and creating support networks for employees who care about doing the right thing is a good start. Now, obviously, this would not solve all of the issues. It would solve some of them. And I think always allowing people to speak out creates an incentive to do so. But then again, you have to, you have to, you have to look at the elephant in the room, too, is that the, the whole business strategy of FIFA is just about ratings and growth and expanding FIFA because they have so many subdivisions around the world that they're always trying to grow. And 
I just don't know how you stop the greed or the flashy infrastructure projects that go to waste or the slave-like labor. Um, it's it's difficult. I, I do just want to end uh, with kind of an interesting little segment from from a book called Why Should We Care? And it's a research, sorry, I said book. It's a research paper out of the University of Colorado. And I just read some of the chapters in it. I, I didn't read the whole thing, but I read kind of the parts about reform. And it's from the University of Colorado, and it's about the problem of holding FIFA accountable. And the article talks about in quotes here, and I'm just going to read it, so bear with me. Accountability of FIFA matters for the governance of the sport, the business of football, and to the, uh, to the larger issue of the accountability of international organizations. Soccer may be simply a game, but with its overwhelming popularity and international reach, it has its feet in international politics, human rights, major business transactions, and many other categories. If the governing body of this sport is not conducting business with integrity, it would certainly have a negative effect on the other things that football is a part of, end quotes. And I will end it with that because I think that's, I think it's a really good point. And something we have to remember is that this type of rot and corruption and moral malfeasance, it, it's not going to stay in FIFA. And it, obviously we know it isn't, but uh, accountability is key. And without accountability and reconciliation, you can really never progress or grow. So uh, you guys can find me as always on, uh, you know, the YouTube, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and uh, I'll be back Monday. So take care. Thanks, guys.